title of this message is Personnel Problems, not Personal Problems. So if you are writing or taking notes, that is intentional. When we say personnel problems, the problem was with the personnel. The problem was there's people involved, and that's kind of the core of today's text, um, primarily involving Timothy and Apollos, but that's part two of the message. So personnel problems is the title. And our first point of the message, which we have a slide for, is opportunities and obstacles. Opportunities and obstacles. Um, Our text is verses five through nine for this section. Now I will come to you when I pass through Macedonia, for I am passing through Macedonia. And it may be that I will remain or even spend the winter with you, that you may send me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not wish to see you now on the way, but I hope to stay a while with you if the Lord permits. But I will tarry in Ephesus until Pentecost. For a great and effective door has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. Now I have two maps, so you can go to the next slide. Macedonia was the overland route through northern Turkey and Greece. The purpose for taking this route was to be able to visit the churches that Paul had already established. A few years earlier, he had planted the church at Philippi and the church in Thessalonica. Remember 1 Corinthians, this book was written around AD 55 during Paul's third missionary journey. So on this map, you see the colored lines. If you have a study Bible, your study Bible will have these types of maps in it as well. Uh, So the blue line is Paul's first journey. The red one is his second journey. The third one is his purple. The purple line is his third journey. The green line is his voyage to Rome. Um, You can go to the next slide. We'll have a close-up, and it gets a little blurry. But uh, the red line being the second journey. Uh, That's where he plants the church in Philippi, plants the church in Thessalonica, and stops in these other cities as well. And then his third journey is the purple line, where he goes uh, back up. Now, he's trying to get across the Aegean Sea to Corinth, but he doesn't cut straight across. Instead, he goes back up around in order to visit those churches. It would have been much simpler and much easier for him to just cut across You say, well, Andy, I thought boat rides were dangerous. Well, they were dangerous. But the Aegean Sea is not the same as these other, like, open oceans. Also, I don't know if you can see it or not, but kind of right around the word sea where the red line crosses, you see those little islands. There's a lot of islands in that area. And if there was bad weather, you could stop off in those islands. Um, I was on a Journeys of Paul tour and Seven Churches of Revelation tour maybe 10 years ago. And we went through Turkey. And we stopped in all these places like Ephesus and um, Smyrna and Pergamum and all that. And then one of the highlights of the trip was going to see the island of Patmos. The island of Patmos is the cave where John, John the Revelator, was when he saw the vision of the book of Revelation. And um, the island of Patmos is, uh, I don't see if it's labeled, but I think it's kind of around the word, on the word Samos there where the S is. So it's about a third of the way across, maybe a quarter of the way across. Um, But we did a boat ride to get there, and it took like four hours. It was a slow boat, but my my takeaway from that was like, if you're going to cross this Aegean Sea in a boat, you could do that in a day, day or two. Like you're not looking at a month months long journey. This is not a huge deal. But if you're going to walk from Ephesus, where that purple arrow is coming in on the green spot, if you're going to walk that whole distance all up around, that's going to take you weeks and weeks and weeks. So 
Paul is taking the long route, the slow route, but he's doing that in order to visit these churches. So again, back in our text, verse 5. Now I will come to you when I pass through Macedonia. Can you go back to the map? Um, So Macedonia is kind of the orange region. Um, So he's going to pass up through Macedonia. For I am passing through Macedonia, and it may be that I will remain or even spend the winter with you, that you may send me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not wish to see you on the way, but I hope to stay a while with you if the Lord permits. But I'm going to stay, I'm going to tarry in Ephesus. So Ephesus is here in the, um, east, uh, the western end of Turkey. So he's writing from Ephesus and saying, I'm going to stay where I am right now until Pentecost. Then I'm going to embark on this journey. So um, practically speaking, what this whole travel log means is that taking a boat would have been faster and easier as he travels from Ephesus to cut across the sea into Corinth. He could have crossed the Aegean Sea fairly easily as he did in his second missionary journey. Um, uh, Well, he crosses coming back. Um, I'd also like to point out the uh, theological paradox that you can see in these verses. You can flip to the next uh, slide, just back to our text. Um, I don't know if you all saw the theological paradox in these verses, but by the way, a paradox is a seeming contradiction. There's a lot of this in the Bible, where it's like, wait, Jesus is God and man? How can that be? That would be a paradox, where like, we don't have an easy time fitting these things together. But there is a paradox in this passage, in these verses as well. We see Paul's very clear planning, saying, I'm going to go this route. But then he says, uh, he says, I am passing through Macedonia. And he also says, if the Lord permits. So he's not just sitting back and saying, whatever the Lord wills, I will do. But he says, no, I'm making plans. And here's the plans. I'm going to communicate those plans to others. But he also has this openness to God's sovereign will. You see Paul's clear and assertive planning, yet also see his humble dependence on God's sovereign will. For I am passing through Macedonia, if the Lord permits. God is sovereign over all things, yet we are responsible for our actions, including bearing the responsibility to take right action and not just sit back and say, if God wills, it will happen, and I am not planning anything. So, verse 5. Verse 6. And it may be that I will remain or even spend the winter with you, that you may send me on my journey wherever I go. Paul is telling them that the purpose for his next visit is in order that he can ask for their financial support. You might not have caught that, but it's there. We'll we'll reread this and go through it a little more slowly. Verse 6 says, It may be that I will remain or even spend the winter with you, that you may send me on my journey wherever I go. Now, you come very often to PBC or and listen to other preachers, and so like Andy's not the only source of preaching that you ever hear, you know a little bit about biblical languages, you, you at least know that the word, the, the Greek is the language of the original New Testament. And you also know that sometimes preachers talk about the Greek. And you also know that Andy almost never talks about the Greek. Andy's not very good at Greek, though he took five semesters of Greek. Greek is the ancient language of the New Testament. When I was reading verse 6, I saw the words, that you may, and I thought, oh, 
That's the henna clause. Because when you're sitting in class for five consecutive semesters, not all the same class, I, I did pass every now and then, um, but I took first semester and failed it, took it again and passed it, took second semester and failed it, took it again and passed it, took third semester and failed it and changed my major. Um, <laughs> Literally, that's what happened. Uh, I went from being a Bible major to being a Christian ministries major so I could graduate on time and get on with grad school where it was the same end result. Um, So I saw this word that, the word that, but I saw the word that used in this way and I thought that's the henna clause and I looked it up and it in fact is the henna clause and you're probably wondering what's the henna clause? Um, Well, Here's what the dictionary says when I pull it up on my Logos Bible software. By the way, if you ever hear someone say, Logos Bible software is the standard. It's the gold standard Bible software you can get from the free version all the way up to the $10,000 version. But if you ever hear a preacher saying it, I looked it up in Logos or Logos, you know he doesn't know anything about Greek. Because those are Omicrons, not Omegas. L-O-G-O, it's L-Omicron, G-Omicron, Sigma. Omega is a, the omega sound. Omicron is the ah sound. So logos should be said logos, not logos or logos or anything like that. These are just pet peeves of mine that I am super annoyed when I hear people be like, the logos. So I looked it up in my logos Bible software and lo and behold, there it is, the henna clause. The dictionary says this, 2443, henna, a subordinating conjunction. Meaning, for the purpose that, or in order that, or looking to the aim, the intended results of the verbal idea. Hina, for the purpose that, is the semantically marked dramatic way of expressing purpose in Greek. As opposed to, and then he rambles on with other stuff that's not really relevant for right now. So you see the word, you see the expression, that, that you may. And this is... So that you may. This is the purpose why I'm coming. So Paul is telling them that the purpose for his next visit is so that they will then send him, support him, pay for his next set of bus tickets, train tickets, boat rides, meals, etc. So there's some purpose there baked into the grammar of Paul's wording. Verse 6. And it may be that I will remain or even spend the winter with you that you may or so that you may send me on my journey wherever I go. Moving on, verse 7. In this verse, let me read it. For I do not wish to see you now on the way, but I hope to stay a while with you if the Lord permits. Paul is saying in verse 7, I don't want to just drop by for a quick visit. He's saying, I want to see you guys for a good long visit. Now, allow me to explain this for those of you who don't like people. A large percentage of the world has something we call friends. And they enjoy the company of those friends. They like to stay for many hours at their friends' homes, visiting, talking, laughing. No agenda, no plan, just being in one another's company. That's normal. In the Christian religion, we call this fellowship. These relationships of warm affection are shared within the body of Christ, not on the basis of shared social characteristics, you know, looks, height, wealth, uh, education, ethnic origin, um, 
none of that stuff is what actually matters in Christian fellowship. But what it is driven by is shared, not physical characteristics or social characteristics, but shared spiritual characteristics, namely union with Christ. And that union with Christ flows out of the personality, uh, the, the union with Christ which exists in their, per, in their person, in their personhood, then that flows out in, in their personality and the character of that believer. In other words, someone who is united with Christ is different than someone who's not united with Christ. Like literally, their, their personality is different. Their eyes are different. The way they communicate, their words, their mouth, their heart, all of those things are different from one who has been united with Christ, who's experienced and truly been um, brought into this fellowship with God. So this, this change takes place, and then that flows out or overflows out practically in their life, in their personality and character of the believer, and it presses through their unique personhood, sort of like Christmas cookies being pressed in a mold or in a stamp. Those Christmas cookies, if you're a purist out there, forgive me for a bit of blasphemy that I'm about to communicate, because I know that Christmas cookies are supposed to be sugar cookies, but let's pretend that there's some flexibility here. These Christmas cookies could be sugar cookies, or peanut butter cookies, or chocolate chip cookies. But if these cookies, if this cookie dough encounters that mold, it's coming out shaped like the Christmas tree. So it is with our union with Christ. We're coming into this equation, and we might be the sugar cookie or the peanut butter cookie or the chocolate chip cookie, but we encounter Christ, and we come out shaped differently than before. And what we're shaped like is Jesus, because of the union with Christ. Now, this is not the same thing as justification. The doctrine of justification is not about your transformation. The doctrine of justification is about paperwork in heaven. It's legal documents that have credit transfers in the record books of heaven. But union with Christ is something that actually is is experienced. And when you experience it, you come out like that cookie pressed through the mold. And there's, there's this change that has taken place and continues to take place the more you are conformed into that image, the image of the mold, the image of Christ. Now, you might be saying, Andy, this, uh, where's your biblical support for this? It seems like a bit of a stretch. I'm with you normally, but right now I'm a little skeptical. Well, skeptics are welcome. So, um, Why are you linking union with Christ and the doctrine of sanctification? It seems like a stretch. Well, if that's what you're thinking, I'm glad that you're asking that. 2 Corinthians 5.17. We're going to stay in the same Pauline genre here. Even letters written to the Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, If any... Thank you. If any man be in Christ, not just some special set-apart, super-sanctified folks, you know, the deeper life stuff that I referenced in my testimony with the Keswick thing, but if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Some preachers rewrite that to say, if the sanctified Christian is in Christ, he should be a new creation, but none of that is what it says. What it says is, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. And I love my King James only relatives and friends. The King James version is actually more aggressive than the modern translations. And the modern translations uh, actually say, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Behold, uh, 
Right. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. All things have become new. Modern translations say, behold, the new has come. King James saying, behold, um, all things have become new. Even that is more radical and more exclusionary of that Keswick doctrine, the deeper life stuff, where you're like, oh, you can be saved and not be transformed. and You can be saved and not have it actually make any difference in your life whatsoever. There's deep irony here for those who are tracking with what I'm saying. Now, you might be wondering, Andy, it sounds a little gospel-y. You're blending law and gospel. I'm saying this is not gospel because I am not teaching that your justification before God hinges upon your sanctification. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is your union with Christ results in Holy Spirit wrought Christ-likeness. There's a distinction between the categories of what I'm talking about. The topics, like if we're working with a website here, there's a drop-down menu, and you click on the topic of justification, and that is being legally imputed, with credited with the righteousness of Christ by faith alone, apart from any effort or trying or sadness or sorrow or moral reform or anything. That's that category. That's that topic. But next, we're talking about union with Christ. Your union with Christ does result in Holy Spirit wrought Christ likeness. It does change you. Put another way, your union with Christ leads to the fruit of the Spirit. Or if we want to put it yet another way, they will know that you are my disciples by your love for one another. John 13, 35. So Paul loves these people. And that's why he wants to hang out with them and wants to have a nice long visit. Not just, hey, what's up? How you doing? Great. Praise the Lord. See ya in eight years or maybe never again because I'm probably going to die on my next journey. No, he wants to have this meaningful fellowship with these people. Now, let's pause there and consider Paul wants that. And with who? Well, the Corinthians, these people that he's just spent 16 chapters correcting and instructing and talking to them about their problems. There's, there's another layer of stuff going on here that I didn't even think about until I was literally reading this text here about 22 minutes ago, at the beginning of the message, this thought dawned on me that did not make it in my notes. And that is that the second half of this message, the personnel problems of the personal personnel problems, like Timothy and Apollos don't want to visit these people. And we're going to get into that in a second. So we'll talk about them in a, in a moment. But what we need to observe is that Paul does want to visit these people. They're the same people. It's the same congregation. It's the same basket of deplorables. It's the same bunch of problems. But Paul loves them and wants to see them and longs to be with them, not just for a short visit, but a long visit. He doesn't want to see them in passing. He wants to stop when he could spend months with them. He wants to spend the winter there. Now, take it a step further and make it practical. What does this mean is happening in a human dynamic 
And um, I think of Nate's Bible study on Thursday night where he's like, here's 10 things to watch out for in false teaching. And one of them is like inserting yourself into the story. And I'm like, I do that all the time. Um, (laughs) Insert yourself in the story. Think Think about this, okay? Paul wants to see the Corinthians. Timothy and Apollos don't want to see the Corinthians. Paul is friends with Timothy and Apollos. They're probably like sitting there in the same room with him as he's writing this letter. They're often, they're referenced together in the same texts a few times. They were, I believe all three of them were in Ephesus in the year 55 when Paul is writing this. So this band of brothers are there sitting around the living room, as it were, and Paul's like, I long to see you. And I'm trying to send Timothy, but he doesn't want to. And I'm trying to send Apollos, but he doesn't want to. But I want to. And so, so think with me about yourself and you're inserting yourself in the story here. Paul has these friends, these people he loves in Corinth, and he has these friends in his living room, and they don't all get along with each other, but he gets along with them all. There's a very real practical dynamic going on here that happens in our lives. And that is, let's just be muted blunt. Um, There are people who strongly dislike me, just being real. There are people who who, uh, I will not do ministry with them. Street preachers, evangelists, et cetera, et cetera. Like people that I think are con men, liars, frauds, apostate, whatever. Other people that I know like them. Other friends of mine like them and want to do ministry with them. And I would be like, oh, I'm sorry. If, if, if so-and-so is going to be there, then I'm not going to be there. Like, I'm, just, I'm not going to stand next to that man passing out tracks. Why? Because I think he's demon-possessed. Six other eyewitnesses saw the demon manifest itself. The man's a con man. He tried to harm our church in a significant way. Therefore, I will not participate with him in street evangelism. And I sure wish, oh, I wish that my friends would also have that same view of him. But they don't. So what should I do? Cut them off and say, I'm not going to talk to you anymore because you're talking to him. People do that. And they do it in very sophisticated ways in the tradition I come from. We call it secondary separation. Secondary separation, their biblical support for it is that we don't associate with those who walk in a disorderly way. So let's say that guy's walking in a disorderly way. We're not going to associate with him. But then our friend is associating with him. So our friend's in sin. So we're not going to associate with our friend because he's walking in a disorderly way by walking with the one who's walking in a disorderly way. The problem is that's this daisy chain that is, connects infinitely And where do you stop if you're going to start connecting it to everyone and everything? So, let's say you have a friend who thinks that you should not be at this church. Well, of course I wish you weren't friends with that person. That's the natural human way. But the... Christ-like way is to even love your enemies and to say, you know what? I'm going to bless those who curse me. I'm going to pray for those who lie about me and I'm going to wish them well. 
And so if you're friends with those people who I would count and they would count me their you know, enemies, praise the Lord. Now, that doesn't mean I'm going to go to ministry at the person. But at least I hopefully am not bearing hostility towards them and then even having some sort of grudge towards you for being friends with that person. And that's the dynamic that like, struck me like a lightning bolt at 11.18 while I was reading this text and realized, whoa, Paul wants to see these people and the other guys in his office don't want to see these people. But you don't, you don't see Paul hating on them. You see Paul loving both his coworkers and these people from this church. So that's all extra. That's, that's something I was not planning on saying. Let's look now at verse 8. Um, verse 8. But I will tarry in Ephesus until Pentecost. Well, let me say one more thing on that last thing before I move on. There, there is a temptation. There is an, a temptation to adopt a mindset that says, um, if he's a friend of mine, he's a friend of yours, or a friend of yours is a friend of mine, or an enemy of yours is an enemy of mine, and because that person's my enemy, they have to be your enemy. And that creates such massive difficulties. Um, I have friends like that. I have friends who, like, I kind of have to keep my other friendships with people on the other side quiet or secret because I know that they had a negative encounter with that person. Um, We need to strive for unity. We need to strive for um, peace with all men. Back to verse 8. I will tarry in Ephesus until until Pentecost. So Paul seems to be writing in the spring, and he indicates that he will stay in Ephesus, where he is writing from until Pentecost, which is late in the spring. And this, I believe, is the year 55, roughly uh, A.D. 55. He dies around the year 65, just for your um, timeline here. Um, Verse 9. A great and effective door has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. One commentary says uh, on verse 9, quote, Paul does not elaborate on the additional uh, comment that there are many who oppose me. But he has already mentioned fighting wild beasts in Ephesus in chapter 15, verse 32. The book of Acts provides further insight into the kinds of troubles that Paul faced in Asia. See Acts 19, 23 to 41, also 2 Corinthians 1, verse 8 through 11. Such is the case in every location where the undiluted gospel is preached. The gospel always elicits opposition, yet cannot be hindered by it. See Philippians 1, 12 through 14. Great opposition presents great opportunities for the proclamation of the gospel, period. Close quote. So think of it like this. Great opposition presents great opportunities for the gospel, and great opportunities for the gospel lead to great opposition. I think some of us think in a very simplistic way, and we're like, wow, this is a great opportunity. Then you take one or two steps, and then suddenly you, you start feeling the fiery darts flying at you. And then you think, oh, maybe it's not such a great opportunity. Maybe I shouldn't do this. Maybe I need to back away, because I thought it would be easy. It's not the case. When and where the Holy Spirit is working, unholy spirits are sure to be attempting to hinder that work of God. This is the universal testimony of church history. When you think about a famous figure from church history. None of them had an easy time. Charles Spurgeon, pastoring the largest church in the world, suffering incredible personal, massive uh, depression, enormous physical health problems, 
did not take care of his body super much. He was five foot four and 320 pounds. So short fat man, <laughs> massive health problems because of all this. The stress of all that I'm sure was enormously problematic for him. Um, he spent many months on end um, on these medical leaves of absence, basically. Um, the, the books describe it in lighter ways, making it sound like he's on vacation in the south of France. But no, he was going to a healthier climate because he's there in London in the 18, between 1854 and 1892. He died in 1892 in London, where there's poor sanitation, not very good light, terrible weather, nasty, dark, dank, just horrible weather, and he's not physically fit. So he's getting sick a lot. He's working himself like crazy. He's writing, I think, 50 letters a day that he wrote to to respond to all the, the mail that he got. Uh, his sermons were read by, I think, one million people per week because they were transcribed and typed with um, that machine that they would, not a typewriter, but the, like, Morse code or something? Yeah, they would, they would wire his message through the Atlantic Ocean, print them in New York City, and sell them uh, all across America. And the distribution was roughly a million people per week reading his, his messages. And so he's preaching the sermon on Sunday, and then he has to help edit the transcript that is being taken by someone in the front row on Mon- or Sunday night or Monday morning so that can be wired, that's the word I was looking for, wired across the ocean to be then printed and published and sold in the U.S., and that's just like Monday, not to mention the fact that there's 5,000 people there and he's preaching without amplification. So the physical toll of all this on his body, there, was, uh, there were some troublemakers in the church at one point, uh, these, I think, I don't know how many, but there were a handful of teenagers in this massive crowd and they yell out, fire, fire. They think it's funny if they spook the crowd. And so the crowd then stampedes out the back, the, the exits, and seven people were trampled to death. Spurgeon collapsed because of this and was, could not walk for days. He was completely bedridden because he basically had like a mental breakdown because of the stress of all of this. Because of seven people in his congregation dying because of basically fire code issues. So that broke his health when he was, I think, 23 years old. And then from that point on, plus his wife's health was horrible. Um, she was basically an invalid. And so anyway, he's, he's this prince of preachers, the greatest preacher in the English language, the most published author in the English language in history. You're getting chapter two of my dissertation, by the way. Um, that's what all this is from. Um, the most published author in English history, in the English language, 63 volumes of his material. And we are tempted to think in terms of a theology of glory. Up and to the right, things get better and better. No, it was hard. The struggle was massive. The depression was deep and dark and long. But Christ was faithful to him. Because he, he was preaching Christ. He wasn't preaching Charles Spurgeon. It was about Jesus and the greatness of his Savior. And so he could accurately and faithfully represent his own weakness and the greatness of his Savior and have a, an effective ministry. Um, same deal with Martin Luther, but I'm not going to give you nearly the detail. Luther is this person that we look at as this historic figure that was kind of the hinge point in the, the Protestant Reformation and, you know, staring down the Pope. The, like, Luther really wasn't that big of a deal at that point, but the Pope was. The Pope was the biggest man in the world, the most influential man, and it's kind of Luther versus everybody, basically. 
And he spends years of his life under, um, he, he was kidnapped by his friends who locked him in, the, in a castle so that he wouldn't be killed by the government. Like, who wants to do that? Like, do you want to spend years of your life locked in a stone castle tower? This is not a pleasant experience. But today there's an entire denomination named after the guy. And we think, oh, Luther, what a great hero. Well, Luther had issues and struggles and problems and difficulties. Wherever there are great opportunities, there, are, there, there is great opposition. This is the universal testimony of church history. All great breakthroughs are preceded by great difficulties. There's great struggle that leads up to the breakthrough. And oftentimes there's great struggle that follows the breakthrough too. See what happens with all of Paul's churches that he planted. He he plants these churches in these areas that had no gospel witness, no gospel access. So praise the Lord that the kingdom is coming. The gospel is breaking through in these regions. And not a hundred years later, those churches are mostly gone. Like destroyed by false teaching. And yeah, Christendom advanced, but Christendom didn't save anybody. Those churches are gone today. Those places are fields with cattle walking around with these giant stone blocks and the pillars that are halfway dug up. I can't help but think of the ministry here in New York City in terms of Breakthroughs being preceded by great difficulties and oppositions and opportunities. Here in New York City, think about or talk about an opportunity for the gospel. People regularly ask me, Andy, why New York City? You're from Florida. Why are you here? That's what they say here. And then when I'm in other places, let's say Phoenix, they say, so when are you going to pack it up and move to Phoenix? We'd love for you to come join our church and be part of the team here. And I say, it's, it's, not, in the, it's not part of the plan. I don't plan to move. But for me to willingly leave would require a greater opportunity for the gospel. And it's difficult for me to imagine such a scenario even existing. Like, I, I could go to a place with greater need. There's the stand countries, you know, Pakistan, uh, Afghanistan, like that. Kind. Those are maybe greater need, but I wouldn't say it's greater opportunity. It's definitely not a more open door. It's difficult for me to imagine such a scenario that is more of an open door than doing ministry here in New York City. And with a church that already, well, already, a church that exists, with a wonderful congregation full of committed believers, love Christ and his gospel, this is a great opportunity, a great door. And we should not be um, confused or surprised or challenged when there's also great opposition. This is normal in church history. Uh, Let's go quickly because it's 11.57. Point two, people and problems. People and problems, verse 10 through 12. Uh, Let's look at verses 10 and 11 right now. If Timothy comes, see that he may be with you without fear, for he does the work of the Lord as I also do. Therefore, let no one despise him, but send him on his journey in peace that he may come to me, for I am waiting for him with the brethren. Um. The second word in verse 10 in my New King James says, it says, and if Timothy comes. If Timothy comes. Your ESV probably says, or it does say, when Timothy comes. So I looked it up to see what's, what's up with that. And um, if you go on Bible Hub, you can see like a whole bunch of different translations all in 
uh, parallel fashion. And what you will come to realize is that the most literal rendering is the word if. If Timothy comes. Paul goes on to say, see that he may be without fear. Why would Timothy be afraid to go to the Corinthians? Well, Timothy's a young man, often looked down upon for his age. Says, let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech and conduct and love and faith and purity. He wrote, Paul wrote chapter 5 of his first letter to Timothy. Do not be hasty in laying on of hands. Do not hastily ordain elders, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. So what we know from these two sections I just read, number one, uh, Timothy is a youth. He is a young man, probably in his early 30s. And there are people looking down on him because he's young. And then what we see in the second passage is that he has stomach problems. He has frequent ailments. So he has this anxiety. He has this fear of man and the criticisms of others. And he's got a nervous stomach and illnesses that come probably because of that. It's all tied together. In his second letter to Timothy, Paul wrote, I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day, as I remember your tears. So Timothy is also, he's not, he's not a stoic. He has emotions, he has a heart, he has feelings. I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I'm reminded of your sincere faith. A faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice. No mention of his dad. So he comes from a home, a mixed home. His mom is a Christian, his grandmother's a Christian, but his dad's not. That affects him. That affects anyone. And I'm sure this faith dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, not a fear, Why is he writing that? Because that's how Timothy is tempted. He's tempted to be afraid. He's tempted to be fearful. God did not give us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and of self-control or a sound mind. Therefore, do not be ashamed. Why is he writing that? Because that's the temptation for a person who's wired this way. This timid person, this fearful person, this one who has this anxiety, they are tempted to be ashamed of the gospel. Do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. This is what Paul writes to Timothy. Paul deeply loves Timothy, but Timothy is a timid sort of young man in general. He has a weak stomach and is often sick. He deals with a lot of fear and anxiety. He is prone to give in to the pressure of others. That's why Paul says, don't prematurely install elders because you're trying to lead a church and people are rising up saying, you need to make me in charge. And he's like, and Timothy wants to keep people happy. So he's tempted to go with the flow in order to keep the peace. Timothy is prone to give in to the pressure of others and he's afraid to come to Corinth. Now, why would any preacher be afraid to go to Corinth? 
It's a great place, isn't it? Well, no, there's problems. There's lots and lots of problems. And Timothy's job as a pastor is in part, not completely, but part of the job is to deal with problems. And that's not fun. What makes this more complicated is that one basic element of the qualifications for being a pastor is that a man must not be quarrelsome, but gentle. This means someone who is this way doesn't love to fight. They actually love peace. They would rather not fight. If you do love to fight, you're probably not qualified to be a pastor. This young pastor is instructed or commanded by Paul to reprove, rebuke, and exhort. These are all confrontational words. These are part, this is part of his instruction. Paul wants him to do these things, but he's probably not going to do these things without a little nudging, a little motivation. Like Paul, Paul saying, Timothy, you have to rebuke that guy. He's like, oh, I don't want to. Yeah, you have to. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort. You tell him what's, uh, what's right, what's wrong, and how to make it right and how to keep it right. That's the framework for what Paul is saying. So you're saying, buddy, you're on the wrong path. Oh, no, you're on the wrong path. And then you have to persist in that. You have to fight through and actually win the conflict and then deal with the, the psychological abusive uh, attacks that are going to come to that from that, saying, oh, well, you just think you're a whatever because you're a pastor. And you as Timothy, you have to persevere through that. Fight the good fight of faith. This is the nature of Paul's instruction to Timothy because of how he is wired. He doesn't want to fight. His natural disposition is not to be confrontational and not to be a combative person. This is why Timothy doesn't want to go to Corinth. So imagine Paul talking to Timothy, trying to persuade him to go. Visualize, hey, Timothy, I really want you to go to Corinth. He's like, ah, I don't want to. I, 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 I don't like going around. I don't like those people. They don't listen to me. I'm nervous around them. They're so aggressive. They're, they're like the problems that they have. And like, I've just been, I've been dealing with nothing but problems. And then Paul says, all right, fine. What if I send them a letter? Then will you go? I'll write them a letter. And I'll tell them to listen to you. I'll tell them to be nice to you. And then Timothy replies, I'll think about it. And then he shuffles off quietly saying, remember what happened last time you wrote a letter? So this is the dynamic with Timothy. Timothy is this fearful guy. He doesn't want to go. He doesn't want to deal with this. He's afraid. They're they're a bad church. They truly are. And he would rather not experience that. But Paul has this love for them. And Paul wants to be with them. And Paul wants to spend a long period of time with these Corinthians. Now, secondly, let's consider Apollos. Apollos, verse uh, 12. Now, concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to come to you with the brethren, but he was quite unwilling to come at this time. However, he will come when he has a convenient time. Apollos' personality um, is completely different from Timothy's. It's, It's 180. It's the opposite. He is a totally different person than Timothy. He is everything Timothy is not. He is a bold, powerful speaker. He is courageous. He is eloquent. He's sort of a type A. When he was a young man, he was on the Forbes 30 under 30. If he was an athlete, they would have called Apollos the franchise. That's his nickname when he, then he's on the cover of Sports Illustrated. 
Best of all, Apollos was also humble. He possesses this, this dynamic, he's, he's the total package. In baseball, there's your baseball illustration, he's the five-tool player. Not only is he a powerful speaker and brilliant, eloquent, and courageous, but he's also humble enough to take the instruction of Priscilla and Aquila. And Priscilla and Aquila's names are always Priscilla then Aquila, which indicates Priscilla, the wife, is probably the more competent one. Who The, the two of them are pulling him aside and privately discipling him. And so he's actually willing to listen to an older woman who's like a mother in the faith to him. So Apollos is humble enough to learn from Priscilla and Aquila who pulled him aside to privately disciple him and mentor him in his understanding of the gospel and Christian doctrine. This is all described in Acts 18. Acts 18 verse 24 says, Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, not timid in spirit, but fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only about the baptism of John. He's doing a lot with a very little bit of knowledge. He began to speak boldly in the synagogues, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, Uh, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. And that's the reason why I believe Apollos wrote Hebrews. And I will boldly argue for that at pastor's retreats. I'm like, no, Apollos wrote Hebrews. It's plain as day. Read his description, read the book of Hebrews, and they match up perfectly. But I understand that the scholarly consensus says it is unknown. Apollos has also already been to Corinth. We know this from the beginning of 1 Corinthians. There's the factions in the church. The ones who say, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Peter, I'm of Jesus. So Apollos has been to Corinth and has had quite a fruitful ministry there. And Paul wants him to go back. And Apollos doesn't want to go back. And he strongly doesn't want to go back. The wording seems to indicate that he views it as a waste of time. Like, the word in my New King James, I don't remember what it is in the ESV. Maybe someone can share it. Um, But, Jensen, what does it say? Oh, you don't have it. Um, What is the last word of verse 12 in ESV? Opportunity? Does it say when he has an opportunity? Okay. Thank you, Luke. I felt real hung out to dry there for a second. Um, yeah, he'll come when he has opportunity. The New King James says he will con- uh, come when he has a convenient time. I looked it up in the Greek. Here's the second Greek word. Um, it's literally the words good and time put together. It's uh, kind of you and then some kind of kairos word put together. So he'll come when he has a good time, when, when the timing is right, when he has opportunity, when it's convenient, when, the, when it seems like, okay, now is a good time. When is it ever a good time to go on a walking journey that's this long? (laughs) This is not a 30-minute plane flight, okay? This is going to take months. It's going to be dangerous. This is the type of region where Paul is like almost dying, getting stoned nearly to death. And so Apollos is like, I don't want to go see those people. All right, fine. I'll go see it when, when I have time. It's quite possible that Apollos was thoroughly annoyed with their factious behavior 
creating a division in the church around him, and he views his further involvement with them as a waste of time, even though it seems to be the case that the Corinthians requested that, Paul, that Apollos be sent back to them. It seems, based on the wording of this, it looks like they're saying, please send Apollos, we want him back. And Apollos is like, nah. Last time I was there, a faction arose within the church, not even around me, but around who they thought of me or what they wanted me to be like. Notice that there is no blame assigned to Apollos for their sinful behavior. None of this behavior that is described uh, that they are doing around Apollos, it's not as though it's Apollos' fault. Also, please notice that none of the relationship uh, dynamic between Paul and Apollos, none of that is regarded as sinful either. It's not sinful or slander or gossip for Paul to talk about Apollos this way, and it is not sinful for Apollos to say, no, I'm not going to go see those people. I'm not going to continue pouring my life into them. Only to have them fall in love with the idea of my teaching, but they don't actually follow my teaching because they don't follow my Savior, whom I adore. My Savior who loved me and gave himself for me. Now, in conclusion. Oops, my notes just went white. There we go, came back. Um, how, would, how would Apollos end this letter? We're almost at the end of 1 Corinthians. Paul ends it, but how would Apollos end uh, a message related to his ministry to people like the Corinthians? Well, we have a benediction in the book of Hebrews, and I believe that was written by Apollos, so let's read that and then we'll be done. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. You should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those who come from Italy send you greetings. Grace be with all of you. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for this section, uh, these verses from 1 Corinthians 16. I pray that there would be something in here that is helpful for your people and something in here that um, you would use to call the lost to find salvation in Christ. I pray that it would be instructive for us in our human relationships, that we would have humility with one another and forbearance and patience as at times relationships and friendships and ministry partnerships across the body of Christ can be complicated or filled with um, awkward dynamics or tension. Uh, Lord, I pray that we would, like Paul and um, his disciples, the ones who he trained, uh, that we would seek to have peace with one another while attempting to do ministry. Lord, I pray that you would uh, help us not to be afraid of opposition, that we would plan, that we would um, keep our agendas open to the will of God, that we would recognize that all of these things are in order that 
Christ would be glorified through the preaching of the gospel, through the salvation of sinners, and through their union with Christ. I pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen.